following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. So I want you to think as we uh, start out here about um, the various contexts in which you hear the word gospel used. Just think about where you hear that word used, maybe where you've heard it in the past. Uh, we talk about gospel music, or maybe more accurately, southern gospel music. Any fans of southern gospel music here? So, yeah, Ken Bird, I knew that hand was going to go up. <laughs> Anna and I got dragged along in the States by my mother-in-law to a three-day gospel music convention when we were living in the States, in the Smoky Mountains of Tennessee. Yep, Bill Gaither and his homecoming friends, if that means anything to you. Uh, three days of gospel music. By the end of that, I'd had just about as much of the gospel as I could possibly stomach. Uh, if it was gospel music, that is. Uh, so gospel music, that's a favorite for some people. Uh, we have, in New Zealand, we have gospel halls and gospel chapels. Uh, some of you might have come from a church that uh, is or has been a gospel hall, gospel chapel, part of the Open Brethren movement in New Zealand. A lot of those churches are now called community churches, but used to be gospel halls, gospel chapels. And then, of course, we talk about sharing the gospel. And we have gospel services and gospel rallies and gospel events and we produce gospel tracts and we preach the gospel and we share the gospel message. So when we're sharing the gospel message, what are we doing? I think what we think we're doing a lot of the time is we're sharing the message of personal salvation. That tends to be how we think about it. We share the gospel with someone. That means we're going to share with them an invitation to become a Christian and we're going to encourage them to make a decision for Jesus. We're going to encourage them to make a decision for Christ through praying a prayer or making a commitment of some kind. And so when we share the gospel or when we hear people sharing the gospel, we emphasize things like personal sin, uh, Jesus dying on the cross for us to pay the penalty for our sin, uh, the importance of personal repentance and us orientating our life toward Jesus so that then we can have the certainty of knowing that we're going to go to heaven when we die. And that tends to be more or less, I mean, we package it in different ways and we use different words, but that tends to be more or less the gospel that we share and that we talk about in our evangelical churches. And I want to suggest, I want you to imagine for a minute that uh, you're having a conversation with Paul, the Apostle Paul. And you say to him, Paul, can I share the gospel with you? If you can imagine that kind of conversation. And uh, you share with Paul the gospel, more or less as I've just articulated it, along those lines. I think possibly Paul would turn to you at the end of that conversation and say something like, everything you've just said is absolutely true, but it's not the gospel. Because for Paul, the gospel was somewhat different to the way we tend to talk about the gospel in our churches. Verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 4 is about the clearest and most succinct description you get of the gospel anywhere. Certainly in the writings of Paul, and the letters of Paul, probably anywhere in the New Testament, the most succinct definition and description of what the gospel is. And this will help us to have some clarity. It really comes down to just three words. Three words in Greek. There's four in English, but just three in Greek. Paul says this. For what we preach, he's already used the word gospel a couple of times. Now he gives us the content of his preaching. He says, for what we preach is not ourselves, but here it is, Jesus Christ as Lord. Jesus Christ as Lord. That is the earliest Christian confession. That is the earliest Christian creed 
That's the gospel. That's the gospel that Paul proclaimed. That is the gospel that we are given to proclaim. It's the announcement that Jesus Christ is Lord. See, for Paul, the gospel is not primarily an invitation to someone to do something. It's an announcement of something that has already happened. The gospel is not primarily a summons to salvation, important though that is. It is a statement. It's a statement of fact. It's a statement of something that is true, of something that is real, of something that has happened. The gospel is not primarily an offer of eternal life, important though that is. The gospel is a proclamation that Jesus of Nazareth, who has been crucified, who has been raised from the dead, is now Lord of all. That's the gospel. It's a fact. See, when we share the gospel, we tend to talk about making Jesus Lord. Have you heard that language? And we say to people, do you want to make Jesus your Lord? Do you want to make Jesus your Lord and Savior? But when you think about it, we don't make Jesus Lord. God the Father made Jesus Lord. When he raised him from the dead and glorified him, Jesus is already Lord. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's why the gospel means good news. It's news. News is something that has happened or is happening or will happen. It's not good advice. It's not a good invitation. It's not a good recommendation. It's not a good offer. It's good news. It's an accomplished, established fact. And the fact of the gospel, the good news, is that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that personal salvation is not important. Please don't hear me saying that. Paul passionately believed in personal salvation. He was a prolific evangelist. He was a prolific church planter. It's just that he understood that's not the gospel. The invitation to salvation is not the gospel. It's based on the gospel. The gospel is the foundation. The gospel is this foundational claim that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the bedrock. That's the foundation upon which we can then invite people to be saved. Upon which we can then encourage other people to give their lives to Jesus. But if all we're doing is talking about personal salvation, and we're not talking about the Lordship of Jesus, we're not actually talking about the gospel. We might be talking about having a relationship with Jesus Christ, but we may not be talking about the gospel. If we share the gospel with people, and we don't at some point communicate this reality that Jesus Christ is Lord, we may not be sharing the gospel. If we do evangelism, but we don't at some point communicate this reality that Jesus Christ is Lord, we may not be doing evangelism because the word evangelism is based on the same word for gospel. And the gospel is the, the announcement, the news, the proclamation that Jesus Christ is Lord. So we need to be clear on what the gospel is and we need to be clear on what it means to say that Jesus Christ is Lord. What do we mean by that statement? We sing it, we say it, we confess it. What does it mean? Well, the word Lord is the word kurios in Greek. And uh, it, it had a pretty wide currency in the Roman world. It wasn't just a Christian word. People used it all over the place. It basically means master. And it, it could be used of anyone who was in a socially superior position to you. So slaves would use it of masters, uh, pupils of teachers clients of patrons and so on and so forth but if you trace the social hierarchy of the roman empire all the way up all the way to the top there is one guy who was given that name lord who was the ultimate who was the absolute kurios who was that caesar and the particular caesar who was in power when paul wrote this letter was nero caesar nero he had just come to the throne less than a year before paul writes second corinthians 
who just ascended to the throne. And Nero was one of the most brutal Caesars of them all. He was the guy that blamed Christians for the great fire of Rome in, in the AD 60s and used, them, used Christians as human torches for his garden parties and all kinds of horrendous things. He was basically a deranged maniac, Nero. Horrible guy. And Nero was known as Curios. He was the Curios. And interestingly, during the reign of Nero, during the 10 or so years that he was in power, there was a proliferation of that word, Curios, in reference to the emperor. It was used before him and it was used after him, but during Nero's reign, there was an absolute proliferation of this word. Even way out into the far-flung villages of the Roman Empire, people are using the word Curios to describe Nero. There's coins that have been found that have got that inscription on them of Nero as Lord. Nero, or Caesar, Curios. Caesar is Lord. People use this word to say that Nero was the absolute Lord. They're not just saying that he's the head of the empire. They're not just saying that he's the head of state. They're saying that he has absolute, uncontested authority over all things. That Caesar has the supreme reign over the entire world because as far as the Romans were concerned, the world was Rome. Rome was the world. So Caesar has this absolute, unquestioned, unparalleled, unmatched authority. And that authority is given to him by the gods, by the Roman gods. They put him in place, they mandate his rule, they legitimize his rule, and he reigns supreme over everything. Can't be questioned. That's what it means to say Caesar is Lord, Nero is Lord. So now you've got Paul, if you can imagine this, here's Paul comes along. He's a man of absolutely no social standing whatsoever in the Roman Empire, and he's writing to a city at the heart of the empire, Corinth, very Roman city, Roman colony, full of Roman citizens, including a whole lot of Roman soldiers. And Paul has the audacity to make this claim that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is the one who has uncontested, unmatched, unparalleled authority, and not only over the earthly realm, but over the heavenly realm as well. His reign eclipses any reign that Caesar thought he had over earth. Jesus has authority over heaven and earth, over past and present and future, over the heavenly realms and the earthly realms, over all of humanity. Jesus has that rule. And his rule is given to him not by these Roman make-believe pretend gods, but by the one true God of all creation. He, that God, has mandated Jesus to rule as Lord. And so, if Jesus has that rightful claim as Lord of all, as the world's true kurios, then Caesar doesn't. If Jesus has rightful claim to that word kurios, then guess what, Caesar? You can't claim that title for yourself. You might be the head of state. You might be the head of a government, but you are not the world's true and rightful kurios. Now, that's a dangerous statement to make. That's a dangerous statement to make in the Roman Empire. That's the kind of thing that gets you locked up in a Roman prison cell or put on a Roman cross. But that's the statement that Paul made. That's the claim at the heart of the gospel. That's the claim that followers of Jesus just kept on making right through the first century and beyond. And that's the claim that saw Christians at the receiving end of a lot of persecution. Michael Bird, who's a New Testament historian, says, Nero did not throw Christians to the lions because they confessed that Jesus is Lord of my heart. It was rather because they confessed that Jesus is Lord of all, meaning that Jesus was Lord even over the realm Caesar claimed as his domain of absolute authority. So Paul is saying Jesus is the one before whom one day every knee will bow, 
every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, including you, Caesar, including even those who don't acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus in the present life. Even then, one day, every person will be faced with the inescapable reality that Jesus Christ is the world's true Lord, Lord of all people, Lord of all nations. You hear something. You hear something of the expanse and the bigness of this claim in the next verse that Paul writes in verse 6. Have a look at that verse. One writer has pointed out here that what Paul does in verse 6 is that he brings together these three images that represent the three major cultures across which Paul worked in the Greco-Roman world. First, he uses the image, have a look there, have a look. He, He uses the image of light. Let light shine out of darkness. Light was a very Jewish image, very Jewish idea. First words out of God's mouth in the Bible, let there be light. And ever since then, God has portrayed an unapproachable light. The light represents the purity, the holiness, the splendor of God. Light. And then Paul uses the image of knowledge. Knowledge was the quintessential Greek virtue. Greeks loved their knowledge. The super apostles that were giving Paul such a hard time in Corinth, they were all about knowledge. They were all about espousing philosophy and wisdom and all of their superior knowledge. The Greeks were right into knowledge. And then Paul uses the image of glory. Glory represents the Roman ideal, the glory of Rome. All roads lead to Rome. And Corinth itself, in many ways, was a testimony to the glory of Rome through its architecture through its cultural life and its civic life. It was a testimony to the glory of Rome. And here's Paul bundles all those three images together, those three words together, representing three different cultures and makes this extraordinary claim about Jesus. He says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has made His light to shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. All light leads to Jesus, points to Jesus. All knowledge points ultimately to Christ. All glory ultimately is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. He's Lord of all, Lord of every tribe, every tongue, every culture, every nation, every ethnicity. That's the good news. That's the good news that we have received, right? You're excited about that, aren't you? That's the good news. That's the treasure. That's that's the good news that we've been made heralds of and stewards of, and given to proclaim this announcement that Jesus Christ is Lord. I think we've got to recover a sense of the bigness of the gospel, the hugeness of the gospel. We are so quick to whittle it down. We want to seem to reduce it down, 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 into just something that exists in my personal private little heart. Well, the gospel is never less than that, but it's an awful lot more than that. The gospel is this staggering claim, this cosmic claim that Jesus Christ, through his life and his death and his resurrection, has become Lord of all. That's the gospel Paul preached. That's the gospel we've received and have been given to share with the world. Now this, I think, was all very personal for Paul. And so, so often in 2 Corinthians, you see the way that Paul's own story comes through and intersects with his theology. And you see that here. Look at all the language in this passage. Just scan your eyes through these verses and look at all the language here around seeing and blindness. Look at all the imagery he uses. Talks about the gospel being veiled. Talks about the minds of unbelievers being blinded. They can't see the light of the gospel. It displays the glory of Christ. Jesus is the image. You hear all that? Sight, blindness, seeing, visibility, all the time. Where's Paul getting that that language from? Right. How did Paul receive the gospel? He was blinded by it. He was blind to the gospel, and then he became blinded by the gospel. See, when Paul writes this verse, look at verse 4. When he says, The God of this age 
has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel. Who's he talking about? Yeah, well, he's talking about everyone who's an unbeliever, but among them, he's talking about himself, right? He was one of those unbelievers. He was one of those people who could not see who Jesus was. He knew about Jesus well enough, but he couldn't see. He had a veil over his mind and over his heart. Paul believed in his days as a Pharisee that Jesus was an infidel, that he was a blasphemer, that he was an apostate, that he was an absolute plague upon Israel. And Paul made it his business to go around locking Christians up, murdering Christians, destroying Christian homes and Christian families, and literally terrorizing Christians. He was basically a terrorist. And he believed that he was honestly glorifying God by doing that, by murdering Christians and destroying Christian homes. He was glorifying God. That's how warped Paul was. Could not see the reality of who Jesus was. And then he met Jesus. And on the Damascus Road, Paul, what did Paul encounter? What did Paul receive on the Damascus Road? Well, it wasn't a series of steps to personal peace with God. It was something else. It was a revelation of Jesus. He met Jesus on the Damascus Road. And he was confronted by the undeniable reality that this man, this crucified peasant from a backwater village in a far-flung province of the Roman Empire, this man was none other than Israel's Messiah and the world's true and rightful Lord. And it changed his life. It turned him upside down. He became a gospel man after that. Built his life on the gospel. Became part of the gospel movement. He was mandated then to plant gospel communities throughout the Roman Empire, which is how he planted this church in Corinth. And he was passionate about sharing the gospel with others and then on the basis of the gospel, inviting others to bring their lives under the lordship of Jesus. And so the gospel for Paul was not only something that changed his life on the Damascus Road, it's something that kept on empowering him. It's something that had an ongoing effect in his life, in his ministry, in his leadership. It kept giving him strength. It kept giving him encouragement. And I want to look just briefly in the time we've got at a couple of ways in which the gospel continues to shape our lives. A lot of us in this room have had our lives changed by the gospel, right? We've heard that news, Jesus Christ is Lord, and we've responded to it, and our lives have been changed. But the gospel should have an ongoing impact in the lives of Christians, not just at the moment of salvation. It should continue to shape our lives. It should continue to shape our community in the present in a couple of significant ways I want to draw out of this passage. Firstly, the gospel should shape our character. You might not think there's much of a link between the gospel and our character, but there is. Look in verse 5. Come back to that again. Paul says, For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your, what's the word? Servants, for Jesus' sake. Now the word servant there is the word doulos, it means slave. And interestingly, it's the same word that Paul uses of Jesus over in Philippians 2. In that passage where Paul talks about Jesus being in very nature God, he had equality with God, but he didn't use that to his advantage. He made himself nothing, taking the very form of a doulos, very form of a servant. Christ emptied himself and became a servant. And then he descended to death. God raised him up, gave him the name that is above every name, which is the name Lord. So there we're back to the gospel again, that claim that Jesus Christ is Lord. But notice that the path to Jesus becoming Lord is the path of servanthood. The way in which Jesus becomes Lord 
is through an astonishing act of servanthood. That he came to serve. Jesus is not the same kind of Lord as Caesar. He's not this bullying, tyrannical, dictatorial kind of Lord. He is Lord of all because he is servant of all. And so embedded in the very fabric of the gospel is the model of our lives as Christians. It's the model of who we are to be. The gospel is not just the means of our salvation. It's the model of our character. Jesus shows us the way because the pathway to him becoming Lord is the pathway of being a servant. And so for us to bring our, our, our lives, ourselves, under the Lordship of Christ means that we adopt the posture of a servant in relation to other people. We adopt the posture of a doulos in relation to other people. That's what it means to be shaped by the gospel. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying we, we, part of our message is we preach ourselves as servants for your sake. It's an amazing thing for Paul to say in the kind of culture and circumstance that he was working with these super apostles that are trying to clamor to get as far up the ladder as they possibly can and they want recognition and they want status and they want a good reputation and Paul says, let them have it. We'll take the bottom rung. Me and my ministry team, we'll take the bottom rung of the ladder. We don't mind. We'll take the rung that's reserved for the doulos, for the slaves. That's where we'll live. That's the basis of our ministry. The super apostles can climb as high as they want on the ladder. We're happy to be servants because that is what it means to walk in the way of Jesus. It's what it means to be a servant leader. It's to walk that humble path of self-giving, self-emptying, self-sacrificing love with the heart of Christ. It's the way of a servant. That's gospel-shaped living. A few years ago, my parents went to Israel uh, on, a, on a holiday, on a trip. And while they were over there, they sent back this package, which arrived at our place, couriered to our place. And we opened it up. It was this beautiful carving that they'd sent back from Bethlehem, an authentic wooden carving from Bethlehem. And it was of that scene in the Gospels where Jesus washes his disciples' feet. Uh, it was great. And I emailed Dad and said, thanks so much. This is a beautiful gift. And he emailed back and said, actually, it's not for you. Uh, we just sent it to you until we get home. So if you can keep it safe until we get back, that'd be great. So that was the end of my servant attitude on that occasion. But actually, he felt so bad for me that when he got back, he ordered another one for me, which arrived and I had it for Christmas. So I do have that carving now and it sits on my bookshelf. And it sits there in my office as a reminder to me of what my calling is. It sits there as a reminder to me of what it means to be a pastor, of what it means to be a leader, of what it means to be a Christian. And honestly, I fall far short of that every single day, but it sits there as a perpetual reminder to me of what it means to walk in the way of Jesus, and particularly for me to be a pastor, to try and be a pastor in the way of Jesus, to be a servant, to humbly and lovingly serve others in the way of Christ. That's what it means for us to walk in the way of Jesus and to be gospel-shaped people, is to look for those ways, big and small, to simply serve other people, put the needs of others ahead of ourselves, lay down our rights, lay down our interests, lay down our preferences, and look to the needs of others, look to the interests of others, look to those around us who need love and encouragement, who need their needs met, and seek to move towards them with love and grace and compassion. That's what the gospel should do to our character over time what it means to be gospel people that's what it means to be a gospel community and then secondly the gospel is not only something that should shape our character it's something that we're also given to hold out to the world it's a message that we are called to proclaim this good news that jesus christ is lord but we're to do it in a certain way and we're to do it with a certain awareness 
And Paul articulates this in verse 7. I included verse 7, by the way, in this reading because it really connects more with verses 1 to 6 than it does with the rest of the passage. I know in most of your translations there's a paragraph break there between 6 and 7. I think the paragraph break should probably be between 7 and 8. Paul says, he's just made this huge statement about the gospel in verse 6. And then he says, contrasting statement in verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. I think he probably stole that term from the band, maybe. Jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Paul's saying the gospel is a treasure. It's an amazingly precious treasure to hold within us this, this truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. We carry it around like a precious treasure. But he says we carry it in these broken vessels, these, these clay jars. And, and clay jars were just the most ordinary, common, household, everyday objects in the first century. They were just, just these tin pots or clay pots susceptible to breaking and cracking and so on. So Paul's basically saying here we're just all a bunch of crack pots. And he says, even though that's true, there is this great contra contrast between the brokenness of our humanity and the beauty of the gospel. And that contrast highlights this truth that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We've got to remember in the work of sharing the gospel with others that the power of the gospel is in God, not in us. The power does not rest on you. And me. And so quickly, I think, when we're in those situations or conversations where we're talking to a non Christian about the gospel, we can so easily default to thinking that it's all about our words. It's about my ability to get it right. It's about my ability to try and be articulate and eloquent. It's about my ability to have every answer to every possible question they may ask, be able to defend. And of course, it's good. We've got to be able to give answers and defend our faith and so on. But we can just quickly default back to thinking this is really coming down to my power, my persuasive abilities, my techniques, or whatever it might be. And we've just got to remember the power is not in us. It's in God. The power is in God working through the gospel to convict and challenge the hearts of unbelievers. And we might see the fruit of that, and we might not. But we've got to remember, the power is with God. And all we are called to do is to be faithful. To be faithful in witnessing to the gospel before other people and holding out that incredible truth that Jesus Christ is Lord to other people. That's what Paul does. He teaches us how to do this. In verse 2, he says, we, we, we don't use deception. We don't distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly. I love that phrase just setting forth the truth plainly. That's what we do. That's what evangelism is, setting forth the truth plainly before other people. We don't dress it up. We don't make it something it's not. We don't use deceptive means. Yes, we should be creative. Yes, we should be resourceful. and We should be intentional and we should be contextual and all of that. But more than anything, we should just be clear. And we should just be faithful. And we can leave the results to God. We can leave the, the spiritual fruit of all that to God. Sometimes we may see the fruit. That's wonderful. Other times you don't see anything and it seems like people's hearts are harder. That's okay. That's God's basket. That's God's domain. Our basket is faithfulness. When you start taking things out of God's basket, putting them in your basket, then that's a recipe for frustration and discouragement and, 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 and disillusionment. But when you recognize, the, I can leave the spiritual impact to God. I can leave the spiritual results to God. I'm just called to faithfulness, just looking for those opportunities to share a bit of my faith story with someone, looking for an opportunity to share a bit of God's story with someone, looking for an opportunity to, to, to just have a spiritual conversation with someone and share a Christian perspective, and I want to be praying for the non-Christians I know. That's faithfulness. That's what we're called to. We can leave the results with God. 
There's a guy in our church, Jeremy. He's not here today, so I can talk about him. He oversees student life at Auckland University, and he is a wonderful evangelist, such a heart for non-Christians. And he sees, they see great fruit in their ministry. It's amazing. I mean, they had a uh, conference a little while ago. Ten non-Christians, I think, came to that conference. Three of them got saved before they even got to the conference. It was amazing. He's just an evangelist. He just sneezes on people. They get saved. It's amazing. He's just got that gift. And, and I talk to Jeremy, and a lot of the time I talk to him, and I get really encouraged, and I get inspired by his faith and by his passion for sharing the gospel with others. And then honestly, there's sometimes I talk to him, and I, I feel discouraged because I feel like, well, I don't see that. I don't see those kinds of numbers and that kind of spiritual impact in my life, and I wish I did, and I, I don't see it as much as I wish I could see it. But Paul's words call me back to faithfulness. They remind me, what's my role? It's just to be faithful. Faith, I want to be intentional. I want to be diligent. I want to be proactive, but I'm, I'm just called to be faithful. Sometimes that'll mean you see the fruit, sometimes you won't, but we're just called to be faithful. So the gospel should shape our character and the gospel should shape our witness and making us faithful people and sharing the good news with others. So whenever you hear that word gospel from now on, and whenever you speak the word gospel in whatever context you speak it, and whenever we do the work of the gospel together or individually in our lives, let's not settle for a tiny little gospel anymore. Let's not settle for some small little gospel that only affects my individual heart and Jesus being Lord of my life. But let's try and recover a huge biblical vision of what the gospel is, this incredible claim that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's a huge claim. That's a claim that stretches the width of the cosmos, the breadth of history. It's a claim before which the powers and authorities of darkness tremble. It's a claim that echoes in the heavenly realms. It's a claim that is truly good news for the world. It's a claim that should shape our lives. And it's a claim that we have to offer others and then invite them to respond on the basis of that claim let's celebrate the gospel let's celebrate the beauty and the power and the bigness of the gospel let's be gospel people let's build our lives on that truth let's be a gospel community as a church let's be animated by the gospel let's build our church on the gospel let's embody the gospel in our lives in our shared life together and in our witness for the sake of a broken and a hurting and a needy world amen let's pray God, we thank you for the gospel. Thank you for this amazing truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. It stirs our hearts, God, just to hear it and just to let it settle on us, God. It, it empowers us. It encourages us that we hold this truth and we know it to be true, not just words, but we thank you, Jesus, that you are the gospel. You are the truly good news. And God, we pray that day by day we would allow the gospel to shape our lives so that we are conformed to your image, the image of a servant. And that we look for the ways, all sorts of tiny ways, Jesus, to serve others faithfully in your name. And we pray, God, that you would fire us up about sharing the good news with other people. Break our hearts for those who don't know you. Give us passion. Give us desire. Give us courage to hold out the word of life to others, to proclaim the gospel, whatever that looks like for us, to be faithful in that. And we thank you 
but we can trust you with the results. Thank you for the gospel, God. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.